this is a, a pretty one. Yeah, yeah I was trying to do a card every day, and then I used to do that. like a three-card pull every Sunday, but I've been a little lackadaisical about it. I've been, when I was in high school, my mom got me a tarot deck and an I Ching mm -hmm. thing from a local bookstore. I think she had come in one Christmas and, you know, I was uh, when I was in junior high and sixth, sixth grade in junior high, I was reading Dragonlance and Dungeons and Dragons for Rotten <coughs> Realms. Uh -huh. And I think she kind of came in there and said, well, you know, he reads this stuff. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the cat got frightened. You know, he reads this, and I think the person just sort of gave him a, you know, he might like this, and he got yeah. me a tarot deck. You have chocolate on your mouth. Oh, other you. side, other side. Oh, my God. There you go. Um. And I started doing tarot cards in high school, and uh, then I started doing the I Ching. And I did them, I have journals just filled, filled with thousand I Ching readings and tarot card readings through all the way through high school and through undergrad, I did it a lot, particularly in undergrad. Uh -huh. And then all of a sudden I stopped tarot for many years. Mm -hmm. But I continued with the I Ching. Mm. Yeah, I still do the I Ching. Tarot I do pull out every now and then. Yeah. I have a deck there and sometimes I just look, I like the way that it works as an archetype. Yeah, I feel like you're, um, I thought kind of the reason it would be fun to talk that you're kind of this like polymath or like <laughs> renaissance man. Like, oh, oh, I wish. <laughs> You're into like all this esoteric stuff, um, which I enjoy also, and I feel like I got kind of. I feel like when I when you mentioned one time that you were in you were in Jungian analysis, I like yeah. became even oh. very interested all of a sudden. Yeah, that don't, was an interesting time. Don't yeah. you? Are you not anymore? Uh, no, I haven't seen. I haven't been there for about two years now. Okay. I, I spent years in analysis and. I guess what they call depth analysis. That was not what I went in there to do, but it's sort of how I, my therapist and I worked into that because I've always had very vivid dreams and I had uh, been recording my dreams. I have a dream journal, which you should see. Yeah. It's, it's very extensive. Thousands of dreams I've been keeping down since I was younger. Mm -hmm. But I think around 20... I mean, every, every now and then I have a big dream when I was in my early late teens and early 20s, I wrote those down, mm -hmm. and then I had recurring dreams since I was a little boy, and then around 20, th let me think, around 2003, I'll tell you how I got into this, this mm -hmm. is an interesting story, I moved from Columbus to, the last tarot card reading I did, was on September 11th, the morning of, before it happened. Holy shit. I got the tower and the hanged no. man. Yeah, the tower and the hanged man. And I, I did it because I had a dream where I was doing tarot cards in the dream. So I woke up and thought, I should just do a tarot card reading. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to get fired that day. I was working for the Columbus Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a witness to see this too. It's really strange. We saw an owl and a hawk that day in broad daylight. So weird, fighting over a dead squirrel on a tree branch. This is in Columbus Museum of Art, like right in the parking lot. Uh -huh. So strange, such a strange day. Um, but that was like the last time I did it. That dream I wrote was how I sort of started the dream journal. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I should keep that one because that seemed very, you know, profound. Yeah. 
Like and, a, um... Yeah, like some, some <laughs> weird, weird dream. Some Nostradamus. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I thought, well, it's because I'm superimposing meaning on it because the day is so, seems so meaningful. But um, I, when I, I lived in Japan, I, I think I told you I moved from there, I went to Chicago, and when I went to Chicago, one of the coolest jobs I had when I got there that I applied for was for the museum internship. And that was one of those jobs where you, um, um, for basically the first two months, you research with a bunch of the researchers there, like young people that are there, and then you watch the professional, the old timers, give the lectures for for people. But like those free oh, lectures like you get. Um, yeah. Like a docent. Yeah. yeah. Like free lectures that says like, you know, if you meet here on this time there'll be a lecture given about mm -hmm. this or this. And you could sort of make up your own thing. They they recommend that you kinda of travel, make sure you cover a lot of museum. You don't want to keep them in just yeah. one area. So I this guy I was watching him and he pointed to something in this painting and someone asked him, What does that mean? It was like a piece of armor and something and he said, Actually that's funny because that's connected to alchemy. Mm -hmm. And the artist was very fascinated with alchemy at that time. Of course, I'd known and heard about alchemy a lot mm -hmm. you know, when I was younger, and I didn't know what it was. Previous to that, just in like Taoist, I did Qigong, Qigong and Tai Chi when I was in Columbus, and then you hear about alchemists, like Taoist alchemy, when you're involved in that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I thought, I'm going to go research that. So I had access to the library, you know, with the big things, they turn the handles and the, yeah. the, 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 the library opens up. And I went down there and I just went to the subject of alchemy. Mm -hmm. And they had a section there. And I grabbed three books and when I was pulling the one out, this mm -hmm. book called The Splendor du Soleil came out. Well, pulling another book and it was um, written by a guy named Henderson. He was a Jungian analyst. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he wrote a Jungian interpretation of the Splendor Soleil. Mm -hmm. And I read that book. And there was another, a couple other books. A book on masonry there and a book on uh, the unconscious was in there. And I, I took all three books. Mm -hmm. And then I realized they're connected. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my entry point into really getting into Jungian ideas. Mm -hmm. And then for the next couple years or three years in grad school, I studied as much as he, that stuff as I possibly could, particularly... Mm -hmm was interested in a little bit of the occult and Freemasonry and stuff at that time, but um, it was when I got to Japan, I had all this free time that I really dove into the books of Young, because I had, I had a job that I worked earlier in the day, and then I worked late at night, so it was like four train rides every day. Mm. I was a teacher, just like private English school, uh -huh. and I read so much. I was so isolated there, and for two years, mm. I traveled a lot, and I read, and I read psychological types, I read psychology and alchemy, I read a lot of Mir Louis Lanfranc's books, okay. and I read um, Aeon, I read some of the heavier three books, way beyond what I was capable of understanding, just sort of reading it, and during that time my dreams got super weird, <laughs> and then... Um, Were you interpreting them, or just writing them down? I was writing them down, I was attempting to interpret them, at the time I, you know, like even Young said that you, know, you kind of start with the shadow. Mm -hmm. It's sort of an entry point. Yeah. So I, was, I, I realized there was a lot of shadow mm -hmm. elements in my dream. Mm -hmm. And then I think being isolated in Tokyo kind of it was, I was, my per, I had like a, um, what do you call it? Uh, I had a identity crisis. Oh, yeah. A big one. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on at first. I was like, what is going on with me? 
but, that um, makes sense. Yeah. Maybe like in a strange place and kind of. Well, when your clothing doesn't work anymore, because yeah. <laughs> like you know, you're trying to be, you wear your clothes, but they're like a lot of cultural indicators mm. when you're a hipster in grad school yeah. in Chicago or something. <laughs> and then you, your humor doesn't work because of sarcasm, mm. and then your language doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So when yeah. you don't have all these you know, signifiers and these things that validate who you are, you really say, so who am I if I'm not my musical yeah. tastes don't work here, my humor doesn't work, or my clothing doesn't really say much. Yeah, it and seems that, like... It was a weird time to be... It seems helpful, though, like, I think of, like, I mean, I felt like that kind of during the past year a bit, and, like, I feel like Young was all about, like, kind of not taking things at face value and having to kind of, like, look within or, you know, like, we inherit things from all these cultural and institutional places, but really you sh it's better to kind of make your own way or something. It was, uh, well, speak on that, it was when I was in Tokyo, I was, I watched, uh, I'd done a quick brief trip to Hong Kong for a little exhibition with some of my friends that were there, and we watched Total Recall, and then we watched this movie Sunshine mm -hmm. in, in a row, mm -hmm. and I realized that one movie was an introverted movie, and mm -hmm. one was an extroverted, because I was reading Psychological Types at the time, mm -hmm. in the sense that the focus of Total Recall is completely an extroverted. They're both two movies about some man saving the whole planet. Mm -hmm. both, both, both movies are about that. But one was all about the affect, like that movie, I think it's called Sunshine, mm. where there's a guy burning up in the end of it, it's like a shadow figure. Is it like a sci-fi film? It's like a sci-fi film, yeah, like, no, it's like in space, oh. it's, it's kind of recent, he's like, oh. they're going to the sun to drop a nuclear missile into the sun, which is like going right to the core, the sun being an image <laughs> of like the, mm. the ego, and then Mars, them trying to like, you know, Schwarzenegger, and trying to <laughs> save the whole planet from... But I remember thinking, like, I, I realized that the Jungian thought was starting to change the way I interpreted movies, mm -hmm. in the sense that even to what extent, this is an external movie like Total Recall, all the details are in the, the universe that the characters exist in, and basically the characters are pretty flat in Total Recall, mm -hmm. you know? That's, it's Verhoeven, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Ver it's very, very flat. Yeah. And the kind of the idea of saving the world is almost like a MacGuffin. Yeah. It just, just doesn't really matter. It's just about all the weird stuff that happens in the movie. Mm -hmm. you know, like three boobs and yeah. that thing in his nose that comes out of his nose <laughs> and that mask that shifts. But on the other hand, the other one was all about the internal struggle of the individuals and the character development. And at the same time, the sun was also the saving movie, was also sort of in the background. Mm -hmm. which is a vehicle for people's personality or inner struggles. And I realized, whoa, mm -hmm. maybe this introversion, extroversion thing also appears in movies. Mm -hmm. And of course, things like, you know, Star Wars, mm -hmm. you know, that's... Hero's uh, journey. Yeah, it's just, it's just Arthurian legend with light lasers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's just knights with lasers. Yeah. And I, I remember I told someone a long time ago, it was so funny that... Um, that these like, fedora-wearing atheists would just, like, <laughs> wait in line for days to go see a movie, which is essentially religious in nature. And mm. they, they wear rubber ears and things. I mean, they're completely dependents yes. waiting in line, and they're completely, like, overtaken by characters, and they're obsessed with this. 
And yet at the same time, they'll be like, oh, you religious nuts or something. Yeah. They, they think religion is just like some, you know, ri ridiculous invention of man. They have no idea what the unconscious, the archetypes, and the collective yeah. unconscious is. It's but it was weird. yeah, and young that I, I I learned that there's something much greater mm -hmm. <laughs> in the background of things. Yeah. Um. I'm gonna pet the cat. He's so <laughs> so chill. She. She. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, she's fine. Um. So like, yeah, I feel like you're into all these things. Um. Do you? And then your your work is abstract, or would you call it abstract? Yeah, it's totally abstract. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I think I mean I think abstraction relates to spirituality. Maybe um, I yeah. mean, what yeah. is that part of what drew you to it? Or I was just in London, mm -hmm. and it was weird. I had like a machine gun rapid fire, the Forest Project. Sophie, who runs that, and Broku mm -hmm. help help manage it, manages that. They do a very good job of like just machine gunning studio visits. Like really? I got like three in, three in a row, you know, like every day. And they're like professionals, not other artists? Like yeah, that. they're like collectors, yeah. curators, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, you know, people from different galleries come. It's very good, it's exhausting though. Yeah. And then you're like, I wanna paint, I wanna yeah. paint. But um, it had this, in doing that I sort of had to keep explaining the same thing and then mm -hmm. I didn't wanna keep repeating myself so I started yeah. to like <laughs> shift how I was describing my yeah. work, you know? And then in doing that, something interesting kind of came out, and mm -hmm. it was uh, it was about, and I've thought about this with Julie, my wife being like in the realm of like image mm -hmm. like, solidly, and then how I'm I, times I'm jealous that you, that painters who work in figuration or, or at least in image base that they can use the language of the unconscious like dreams, mm -hmm. and they can communicate something much greater. It was, again, back to Jung, the idea that there's a, the difference between a sign and a symbol. Mm -hmm. No, not like signifier. We're not talking about like the like the uh, French intellectual deconstructivist idea of sign and symbol was uh, signifier. But Jung was talking more along the lines that sim, like symbiotic, meaning two things in Greek, mm -hmm. and bowling mean thrown together. Mm -hmm. And it has this really weird connection to money, a symbol, mm -hmm. and the old tally sticks where they take the stock and they'd cut it and you'd have a share, stocks and shares, and you'd come together as a bond, the tally stick method. So stock shares and bonds came in a minute. Mm -hmm. But that piece was called a symbol and the part that you didn't see that you shared with the king. Mm -hmm. But the symbolic being like always open-ended, half unknown, mm -hmm. where like a McDonald's logo is a sign, meaning right. pointing to one thing known. Mm -hmm. And a lot of figuration is like an illustration of some concept and it's more of a signifier it's more of a sign mm -hmm. where good you know surrealist art artists you know were the first to really investigate it like de Kirchhoff, yeah. where the object or the image inside and the relationship between them is open-ended mm -hmm. in the space between as a suggestion of something to come mm -hmm. past present and future sort of melting time is merging space is confusing mm -hmm. and I was always been sort of jealous about Figure, figure painters or image-based painters and able to communicate with that language I like so much mm -hmm. in movies. But um, I'm also very fascinated with, with mathematics and geometry. And Pythagoras was such a... I mean, when you think of the staggering genius the man was, mm -hmm. it's funny that, you know, where... You know, cultural indicators, symbols, 
religious iconography, that's cultural as well. Although there are, mm -hmm. it, as it goes up the layers of the onion, so to speak, it goes into the personal unconscious, and it communicates to the personal unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. So mathematics, on the other hand, is there before people. Mm -hmm. It's like a language in nature. It's a mm -hmm. different kind of language. So where, like, something in Balinese culture won't translate over to, say, you know, Spanish culture, mm -hmm. as far as an image or a signifier in, in, in an yeah. image. Mathematics is universal. Right. And I think where, I'll put it simple, where the image is capable of communicating the collective unconscious and the personal unconscious culturally as mm -hmm. well, abstraction has capability of communicating something not unknown, but unknowable, in the sense that mathematics can push, geometry pushes it. We're constantly discovering patterns that are unknown at the time. They're not invented, they're mm -hmm. discovered. Mm -hmm. Where you can invent a very weird situation with imagery, and it works, it's a very fantastic thing, but to me, I think with abstraction, we're getting very deep. We're getting deep into what's yeah. even possible, what does knowing mean? That, and the sort of epistemology of what knowing means, mm -hmm. what it means to know. How do we know what we know? Yeah. So abstraction to me can go a little bit further in that way. Right. Yeah. And it's beyond like language, like like you said, kind of not using math per se, but like well, it's universal in a sense, and then it's it's maybe more pure in a way too because it's yeah not. There's a reason we make things visually, right? Because there's... But, but if you're working with images, you can kind of translate it or talk about it a little more easily, whereas abstraction kind of is itself and can't really be reduced in a way. You could describe parts of it, but... Yeah. yeah. Well, it's weird, you know, Euclid's 47th problem. Mm -hmm. the Chinese, there was a Chinese and, and even a Japanese mathematician a long time ago who had figured it out in a different way with interlacing grids. Wait, and what is it? I don't know what that is. It's, you know, it's like the, the hypothesis, the, it's the, you've seen it before, it's the little triangle where one side is a square and the smaller side is a square and they all equal to the center. Okay. You know, this, like, you fill it up with liquid, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, it's very, you've seen it a million okay, times. Okay, I'm it's sure It's one of the things you learn in high school. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, the fact that people found it out in different ways, mm, in different ways right. of explaining it, even mm -hmm. though it was a mathematical language, there are different ways of figuring it out. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, also that, then I just think about God and stuff, too. Like, I've been reading this John Coltrane book and how he was He was into, he was into mysticism. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he and was into geometry as well. And, like, just, like, that it's all one, and he was into all, like, gods and, you yeah. know. He yeah. knew, he knew that in the pent in the pentacle, the pentagram that the golden mean was hidden in that and he there's mm -hmm. I've seen a paper where he had kind of broken down the pentacle mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and he was apparently getting into psychedelics towards the end of his life I'm not so. surprised yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that but um and I feel like there's a, a, a psychedelia in your work I was also thinking yeah. like it feels like you had like a breakthrough or something like I remember seeing your work here and there and then it really went to this next level, I don't know exactly when that was, but 
Yeah, it's it's been something that you know in London no one mentioned that because no one knows the earlier yeah. work. But you've seen me around yeah. New York for a long time now, so you've seen the changes. And I mean, before I came to New York, I got my master's degree in sculpture. You did. Yeah, so I was doing more performative mm. work and more minimal. Uh, I was a minimalism was the first big movement that affected me and. And in the late 90s, I worked for Anne Hamilton was an installation oh, artist. Oh, cool. And, um, she's so intriguing. Yeah, she's intriguing. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that was sort of brought me out of paintings, at my bachelor's degree in painting. And then I went into sculpture. I took a few years before I went to grad school. I did mostly installation art mm. and uh, music. And um, I had many breakthroughs at different times. Mm. In grad school, I was on the verge of a couple breakthroughs and I had a couple great pieces that were video works and mm. um, performative mm -hmm. and I think that ultimately it's always about intuition. Yeah. When I got to New York I started to work for Saul LeWitt. Oh, okay. I, 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 when I lived in New, when I lived in Tokyo, I, when I was in Hong Kong, I heard about them looking for someone mm. and I needed a way to get out of uh, Asia so I decided to just immediately go into a job in Massachusetts working for Mass Mocha. Oh. So I went to work with LeWitt, and I was attracted to LeWitt's sort of, mm. you know, idea that generates yeah. the art, uh, and kind of learned learned the, his concepts and then did them. Mm -hmm. I found them a bit too, uh, and I love LeWitt's work, and it is sort of the language of, say, God, some have said, you know, others mm. have said that, that it's the language of nature. And you could argue that someone would have come up with some of the ideas eventually. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. That idea was like waiting, <laughs> like yeah. a platonic form, you know, waiting. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, after coming out of grad school, going there, learning about the way, then moving to New York, I had this little tiny studio, and I couldn't make sculpture. I had nowhere to save it, so I just started doing painting again. But mm -hmm. I think at the time I was just constipated down there <laughs> in the basement <laughs> and working out I did hundreds of paintings down there hundreds of paintings mm. and not many people saw them mm. and at the time I was working I worked for Paula Cooper I worked for so many galleries at that time Barney yeah. uh, Westwater mm -hmm. etc working as an art handler and just sort of getting burned out on yeah. all the art that I saw and then sort of seeing logical conclusions of work that I was making, like if I would have kept doing that, I would eventually hit that artist. Mm. What do I do then? You know, like yeah. I didn't know how, where to go, so I thought that I was going to reduce myself back down to painting and really challenge myself of making a good painting. So I find them to be the hardest thing in the world yeah. to do. Oh, a good painting <laughs> is super hard. Yeah, I think they're the, like kind of the eye of the hurricane too in terms of the art world. Like it's yeah. like so much history and so much like it's like the center of the market and all this stuff. Yeah, I mean video is great. I love making videos. I'm, I have a few videos I'm working on for a long time. Yeah, we should talk about the video oh, at yeah. some point. <laughs> yeah, I played, I, I played it in uh, London. I, you did? I played a couple videos and I had some really strong reactions. Yeah? Yeah. One guy got really anxious. Yeah. But, uh, Do you want to say anything about like what the videos are just for people that well, haven't there, seen them? I think you, you were talking about the, the kind of change that happened in my painting. Mm -hmm. It's the guy, the, one of the responses to the video, which the videos are just, one video is like memes for hours and hours, and mm -hmm. just memes, but viral videos, and videos, mathematical videos right next to absolute stupidity. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't want to make like a fail video, or, yeah. you know what I mean, not one of those. I kept it, I made sure that I 
curated it. Yeah. Where there were little connect connection points. Yeah. And the paintings themselves grew out of this idea of connecting a single mm. mark and reducing everything. There's a little wit in it, you know, because mm -hmm. the new paintings are reducing everything to one mark and then making connections and then res one mark responds to the next, fills up another space, fills up another space. So they're automatic in the way that they work, but there is a sort of guiding hand in the background that's not too strong, sort of waiting. And then once the painting, where most painters go from general to specific, I, I kind of go from specific to general until mm -hmm. sort of critical mass is hit, and then the painting sort of switches, and then I make decisions about color and dynamic and, and flow, and then if the painting isn't feeling correct, then I'll intuitively switch it. But by that time, the paintings have really hit a critical mass of mark, and then I'm mostly interested in just the flow, the eye going through it, um, the painting working as a sort of, as I've been kind of saying, like almost like a magic mirror, where you can't stop staring, and you want to look at them for a long time, and yeah. a, a work of art where you can you can have it in your house and always want to look at it. Always, yeah. yeah, they're but very I, like active, or like I mean. Both the video and the paintings are very, like, hypnotic. Exactly. The videos themselves are like, people can't stop watching. Yeah. And I was, I was inspired by Christian Markley's clock because yeah. the people couldn't get out of the, couldn't leave this theater. Mm -hmm. I thought, man, if I could ever make a video, because I hate most art videos. Yeah. I go into a gallery, I'll watch for one minute, I'm out. I you know. know. It's very rare that I'll stick around. Totally. But I, I thought, man, could you make a video that would make people stick in a room for yeah. I think I did. I think you did. I think I did. <laughs> and I think the key to the Markley and yours is like, it's not just having an idea and kind of like slamming it together. Like, yeah. there's just so much thought into how it flows into things and the editing and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't want to make any absolute uh, comments or anything, but to me, like, Art is a living thing that's like a mirror of you, mm -hmm. like your being. Yeah. And if you're controlling it too much from your head or illustrating a concept too much, mm -hmm. sure those come out later when you're, what did I do? Or yeah. Something. But I mean, I think that art has to have a li life of its own. And I think both the videos and the paintings that I'm working on, um, they make themselves in a sort of way, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and like dreams. Yeah, like, well, I said this, I think, once in the, uh, I think it was the, uh, I did an interview for that Sound and Vision podcast, mm -hmm. and I think I said this in that video, but that I had a dream first. Like, that mark was showing up in other paintings, and then one painting I kind of did a cluster of them. Mm -hmm. and I kind of said, this mark is getting annoying. It just won't go away, this stupid uh -huh. brush mark. In your dreams? Or in, just, no, in, in real, in oh, my okay. real paintings, yeah. they, were like, they were bugging me. Uh -huh. More, more uh, rosé, okay. more rosé. <laughs> Over the cat with the poor hair. Hot, rainy, stormy day. It's <laughs> a really rose. drama, drama, pod. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and then I had a dream where I painted one of those paintings with that mark. Just Amazing. covered the entire strip. And I woke up in the morning, I told you, I said, Julie, I had a crazy dream when I made that mark, and she said, you should paint the painting, and I said, I'll take forever. <laughs> but I came back, and there was this one painting that had a lot of the marks, and I thought, well, I'll just kind of keep it on the side, and I'll mm -hmm. occasionally hit it when mm -hmm. I got extra left on my brush or something. <laughs>
and it filled up quite fast. Mm -hmm. I was, oh, this is maybe not impossible. And as I sort of hit on it, it did sort of hit a point where I was like, whoa, this is actually something interesting. Yeah. It looks like a Jackson Pollock or something. It's <laughs> It looks like a futurist painting or something, a cubist yeah. futurist. What is this? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I didn't show anybody that painting. Only a couple of my friends saw it. Mm -hmm. I think Jim Way saw it and Rob Dude saw it and then Chris Dunlap saw it. It's a couple of my friends that were yeah. always in the studio or something. Uh, and then I think I, I sent a picture to Peter Shear and yeah. And like, hey, this is kind of so honest. This is something unique, you know. Mm -hmm. And and then I decided, well, you know, shit, I'm just gonna. <laughs> I had like I found a roll of canvas on the on the next to my studio. Amazing. So I I just painted on the back side of the shitty painting I found on the street. Cause like, ah, it's not worth. Cause you didn't want to commit to it. No, exactly. I didn't want to commit to it, so <laughs> I made this really crappy painting on an old beat up stretcher, and mm -hmm. it ended up working. I was yeah. Like, Whoa, this is something. That's cool. Yeah. It feels like you kind of, it did like, it like came to you and then you like just surrendered, you didn't, you like surrendered to it. Well that's something. back to the beginning of the talk about young. It, yeah. It has to do with the unconscious knowing. Yeah. The unconscious is, as you know, vast, vast. Yeah. And it's so much wiser than your conscious yes, mind. Yes, I believe that. Because it, it, it can pull from so much. Mm -hmm. I, I try to tell people this who, who, who don't... This is a good illustration, I, I kind of description. And I know mo movie people have correct. I've told this to a movie, and the guy who actually does movies and says, you got it all wrong, but for the sake of uh, the, the normie here talking. Yeah. Uh, when you're dreaming, say you're in a haunted house and then there's a monster that appears, you know, mm -hmm. and you kind of watch yourself series and then you then you're part of it mm -hmm. how is it possible that your mind creates in real time an entire world in high detail creates autonomous figures in that dream mm -hmm. that then shock and surprise you with their actions yeah how can you be the director the actor and every night. And the <laughs> audience at the same time, every night. Yeah, and we all do it. Like, yeah. we all have that capacity. It was, when I, yeah, when I learned, I mean, Freud knew this, uh, that there are parts of the mind that are completely autonomous. Yeah. And that we only think we only know what, what our conscious mind is capable of doing. And we have no, most people don't really have a good understanding of what... Uh, the unconscious mind, how it works, or the liminal states are, how how mm -hmm. far down it goes. It's like almost all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the iceberg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that image because it's. I mean, I I find that exciting. You know, like you never get to the bottom of it, and there's so much to learn about yourself or to pull out in the work or something. Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. Especially nightmares. Yeah. yeah do they, you feel like, so do you feel that, that dreams continue to inform your work in a way? Well, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Not so directly these days. Yeah. But what I noticed in when I was in at the Young Institute getting my dreams analyzed, and I happened just by chance, the room that I was getting analyzed in was a, a sand play therapy room. Whoa. Which is, for people who don't know, that's a room with a sandbox that's kind of 
kind of waist height. Yeah. And then there are hundreds of toys lining the shelves around this room. Wow. And they chose the toys themselves to be like archetypal toys, like mm -hmm. dead trees, living trees, zombies, robots, wow. you know, all kinds of things. Ambulances, cars, airplanes, birds, and all the animals are there. Is and it meant for children or for anything? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was a Swiss therapist, and then they also use it, I know they use it in Japan. I met a woman who was a... Because uh, young Japanese children, especially traumatized children, are, mm. don't Japanese culture doesn't express their emotions right. as easy. Yeah. So by by observing children and asking them questions, you sort of occupy their mind, mm. and then you can get them to talk about things. But yeah, it's usually used for children, but adults can use it yeah. too. <laughs> and occasionally, a couple times early on in therapy, I. Well, well, let me show you. There was an object there, and I just made the dream in three dimensions. Yeah. And then I realized, whoa, like, <laughs> dreams are really have a lot of information in them. I know. They're, like, really compact. I know. I mean, you could, we have them, I feel like when you start to pay attention to them, it's weird because, yeah, you have them every night, and you might not immediately be able to interpret even one of them so it's like you build up all this information really quickly well, yeah the interpretation of the dream is really tricky yeah because i mean you can't open up a dream interpretation book anyone yeah. who really looks in a dream it, you have to take into consideration the per the individual the yeah. individual relationship to the image what's really weird about going into getting your dreams analyzed and you start the process is that I had dreams that were recurring for years, and mm -hmm. then suddenly they never occurred again, and then they, a new thing happened. Yeah. And a new, suddenly I realized I had started the process. Right. Kind of like the unconscious, they call it like mercurial, it's mercurial. Uh -huh. So if you look at your unconscious mind with fear, it'll reflect fear back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look at it with curiosity, yeah. it will be curious what, yeah. too. And I, I remember I had a, I had a, a dream early on in analysis where I had a, I was on a ship, and I, I had left England and I was heading to America and I got to the halfway point and I realized if mm. I turn back now, I'll be an old man. Right. So it's all or nothing. And then in the middle of the ship there was a black <laughs> telephone and it rang. Mm -hmm. And I picked it up and it was a goodbye from back home. Mm. And I Answering the call. That's yeah, the hero's yeah. journey. Yeah. <laughs> and then I I tried to find out I, I made these little I'd make these dream, these, I'd now analyze, I'd write the dream down, I'd use images. So I'd gone mm -hmm. online to try to find an image of the telephone I had in the dream to kind of add in my image bank. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find it, so I found a phone that was kind of interesting, and I used it instead. Yeah. And then the very next night, I dreamt of another telephone in the middle of a table that I couldn't reach. <laughs> and it wasn't the same black telephone, it was the telephone that I found Whoa. the day before, and I realized, oh my god, I just used that instead. That's and I, I realized, wow, that, that it just keeps, if you keep analyzing, it'll just work with your own conscious yeah. mind, and you can, you can really start something happening here. Yeah. And I did, I did, I went down some really long roads and had some revelations, and I had yeah. a lot of breakthroughs in therapy using, working with my dream. Because mm. your unconscious knows. Yeah. And the more you try to hide something, the brighter it shines, you know? Right. Well, isn't that why you have a recurring dream? It's like you're not getting something, like it needs to keep tapping you, kind of? Yeah. I always dreamt about going back to my mom and dad's house in the, in the woods back in Coshocton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why. And then once I, I figured out what that represented, mm -hmm. it didn't go away. I just, 
it worked with me knowing it, and it, so I was able to use that as a base. Mm, like integrating. Yeah, what well, represented to me a series, like a bullseye, a series of, as you mm. go closer to the self. Yeah. Like, as I was either in my dreams moving away, leaving the house, or coming back to it, mm. I was constantly either going one way or the other, and then like, as I got closer to the house, the way the, the world around it changed, or the things that happened when I got to my bedroom. I was at the innermost chamber of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Your and the things self. that happened in there, my dreams were so strange. Mm. It's interesting you have such this, like, rich dream life. But, yeah, like you said, you don't you don't use those images per se. Although it sounds like you were making, like, collages, or were they Photoshopped? Like, how were you collecting? You said something oh, about I collecting a, images. Yeah, I, I don't even, you know, Julie always said, like, why don't you somehow figure this how to use yeah. this. And I, I showed some of my black books. I have a, these books I've filled yeah. up with writings for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, especially with all the weird occult stuff. They look yeah. like wicked weird <laughs> books. But I just, that just informed me. I, I couldn't make it art. It's just too... Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's it's part of it, though. It maybe doesn't have to be shown to be part of it. Yeah. I want it, I guess I've always tried it to just be, I guess to be more of a, an individuated or more of a complete person. I think that if I could, I always felt like a lot of my energy was sort of blocked by neurosis and, mm -hmm. and anxiety and, and, and I think that by, some people utilize that. You can use it. You can sublimate yeah. that very, yeah. very, very well. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 it was just too much, and I was my energy was going all over the place. And I think by contracting it and painting and focusing on one thing, yeah, a I, still one thing in painting. I was a, I was a hundred different painters. Yeah. But I still, as I worked, I noticed that my art changed with my development at the with my therapist and through my dreams. Yeah. I feel to the like point where literally the painting came out of the dream. Yeah, totally. That's which is, seems like the best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't put your bets on it. I wouldn't that was a complete accident or not accident a complete random thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe not though. I mean in some way I feel like you must have kind of freed yourself to like like this is what you want to do your whole life, I'm assuming, and maybe you were somehow had allowed yourself to do that in a better way also yeah i've had many ideas for what i wanted to do with my life mm -hmm. i wanted to be a monk mm -hmm. i wanted to be a martial arts instructor when i was a kid <laughs> i wanted to be a drummer in a heavy metal band i wanted to do so many things i wanted yeah to do. i feel i mean that's maybe what i said meant when i said you were like a polymath or a renaissance man like it feels like you have lots of interests and kind of, you, like, know a lot about a lot of different things. Well, I, like I said, my energy was all over the place. And mm -hmm. I had, when I was a kid, I was in karate, and then I did tai chi, and mm -hmm. I did qigong. And I've always sort of dabbled in different things. I've been very, it's funny because my art finally is a manifestation of the open, curious yeah. nature I had, you know, yeah. growing up. But I felt... I was always worried that I was like sort of a jack of all trades, mm -hmm. and particularly in martial arts. Early on, I, I would get up to a brown belt and I'd quit, and I'd start mm -hmm. a new martial art, you know. Mm -hmm. And with, with Julie and I were both in Aikido. We were in Aikido for for a few years, oh. and I was getting good at it, and then I broke my wrist. Mm -hmm. 
and then I had a hernia, and I just kept getting hurt. And I thought, oh my God, what, what am I doing with my time? Yeah. Why am I in New York? Like when I was in Chicago, I just played drums most of the time, and I realized, oh, I'm pretty good at this. Yeah. Do I just put all my eggs in this basket mm-hmm. and just sort of be in drinking and smoky bars playing music? And then I realized, man, bands come and go quick. Yeah. So I want to put everything in this. Yeah. But being like $70,000 in debt after grad <laughs> school, like, how am I going to do this? Yeah. You know? So I just sort of, I don't know, I'm not going to tell you that I've had it I, I've been completely lost for most of my life yeah I just sort of well that's the follow my intuition <laughs> that's but it feels like I guess what's exciting is I see you finding your path like we don't even know each other that well yeah. but I I've, I feel like I remember your paintings before Dark, they were like yeah <laughs> kind of I don't know just abstractions but like I wouldn't necessarily, like, now I can really identify your work, and it feels, like, really unique and strange, and, and, I don't know, it just feels like you hit on something that... Well, what I hit on, if I was to be so bold... <laughs> yeah. I think I figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> when someone, I, when I showed, I showed Bridget, Molly, the mm-hmm. first one, and she said, it, it, she said, what is it? I don't yeah. know, what is it? Mm-hmm. And I realized, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that was, I'd never quite seen anything quite like it. Yeah. And the way that it made itself and the way that I, I never, and then another friend of mine said, well, it has everything you like in it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, it, it kind of does. And I'm fascinated by it. I, yeah. I don't even know who did this painting. Yes. You know? I can't believe I made this painting. I, it's got all the colors. I hate colorful paintings. You do. It's got all the colors. I, I don't like uh, the idea of all hierarchical structures melting down. Mm-hmm. I don't like this kind of Marxist idea. <laughs> but here I am. I'm painting one now. And it's like, oh my God. So I'm just sort of watching it develop. Yeah. I don't want to dial it in. I could, I could dial it in now and I can make one. Mm-hmm. But then, then this, uh, well, then I'll just put a black hole in their center or something. Yeah. Now I, I keep throwing. It was Peter Shear, speaking of him again. Uh-huh. When he said that he liked to just throw a chunk of crap in the middle of this painting. <laughs> what was he? He said something like he puts an obstacle in the painting mm-hmm. just to give himself something to work around. That's interesting. And I think I've been doing that for a long time without realizing uh-huh. that that's what I was doing. Kind of but pulling the rug works, out. But that works for you? It, I think it was driving me crazy because yeah. I wasn't consciously aware of what I was... Why yeah. would I keep pulling the rug out and then yeah. at the, right before I get good at something, I just switch? Yeah. Why would I do that? I think we like distrust things working sometimes, you know? I feel that somewhat. Like, I feel like I'm just starting to like make things a little easier for myself and I think I've felt like yeah like a distrust of things being too easy or what comes naturally maybe that's too facile or something like that yeah or like when not naming any names but a very well-known artist had a show at Nagosian I went and saw it Mm -hmm. and immediately I could tell well man a lot of this has been painted by assistants Mm -hmm. and then it's the same sort of yeah. It lost a sort of vitality. In well, it. you can feel when something's formulaic, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, Bryce Martin 
I mean, it's not that you can't do the same work over and over no. again and not have it be fresh. Yeah. You can do the Heim Steinbeck and just keep doing the same thing and it goes out of style, then back in style, then out of style, yeah. then back in style. Uh-huh. But, because it's so unique. Yeah. You know? But you can still do the same thing as long as its approach is, is, is true, I should say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels like you found a mode that works for you for now, at for least. Now. But for it now. feels yeah. like alive. Like, I don't, it doesn't, I mean, I don't feel like, like, I really like this title of your show, Free Radical, because oh, I yeah. thought it was a good, it feels like it hones in on the process a little bit, but also makes me think of you a bit. <laughs> like, yeah. I think you're kind of a free radical. Yeah, that's sort of the title <laughs> kind of came about, it has a lot to do with aging mm-hmm. and death, but yeah. also with chain reactions. Mm-hmm. Like, a free, a free radical... You can look at it different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the word radical is, like, from the 80s. Radical! <laughs> you know, but it's... Yeah. You know, it's a word we know from our youth. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, we have radical left, radical right, political. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we... <clears throat> you know, it's like, I guess, when an electron, or say a molecule has a, an unpaired electron, or even an ion, uh, it'll sort of borrow from the nearby... Mm. It'll just sort of borrow an electron. And then it's an offset balance where they continuously it starts mm-hmm. a chain reaction mm-hmm. that leads to degeneration. Mm-hmm. And when I make when I started these paintings, it, it is sort of just like a random mark that are yeah. like they're just on there. And then my game is to fill up all the space. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll I'll on the edge of the brush I'll, I'll end with a dark or a light, and I made a simple rule. Yeah. Well, I'll just connect whatever there's. The color blue, I'll connect it to another color blue, or, or black, or I'll yeah. always add black to the painting. I got that from Warhol and, uh-huh. and uh, Solowit. I, I like <laughs> this idea. Mm-hmm. But, um, so they, yeah, they started to feed off of each other, and it yeah. sort of became a chain reaction, and that led to a painting that was unexpected to me. Mm-hmm. If a painting looks unexpected to me, it's going to be unexpected to the viewer, obviously, yeah. in my opinion, I think. Right, like you're not, you don't even know what it's going to look like. No, I like. don't. Yeah. I never do. Which is exciting, yeah. I think. And I always try to, okay, I'll do a black and white one this time. <laughs> that lasts about an hour uh-huh. until I'm like, no, I'm done with this. And then I, yeah. yeah, can you say more about, like, they're very colorful, and you said you hate the color. You, like, didn't want to make colorful paintings, but, like, how does the, how do you, how do you choose the colors, or? I recently, someone asked me in an interview, how do you choose your colors, and I said <laughs> four ways. <laughs> Totally planned, totally chaotically, intuitively, and a combination of all the others, mm-hmm. all of them together. <laughs> Those seem like all the options. Yeah, that's about all the options. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what is painting? Okay? <laughs> like, okay, let's start. It's yeah. oil painting. <laughs> Traditionally, it's about value. Meaning light, dark value. Light, dark value. Yeah. It's about chroma, mm-hmm. meaning the intensity of the color. Mm-hmm. It's about the endless variety of this value in chroma, mm-hmm. colliding, separating. You get you get triads, you get tertiaries, you get primaries and secondary colors. You get a high key secondary color, a low key secondary color. You get a high, you know, you know the hue. Everything sort of mixing. Mm-hmm. You get composition. Mm-hmm. You have all the elements of painting, application, yeah. contrapposto, mm-hmm. uh, or sorry, um, impasto, mm-hmm. spumato. You have all these different ideas. What's 
Like Da Vinci's sort of cloudy effect. Oh, okay. Of, uh, space. Like yeah, yeah, right. It could be. Yeah. A little contrapposto with the dashes. <laughs> uh, but I think you can get that. I was trying to get that in one brushstroke. Mm. Are you? I mean, it almost feels like your brush is yielding multiple colors at the same time. Is that part of yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, I kind of think of the brush, I use any from a two and a half to five inch, even an eight inch brush, they're hard to wheel and they're hard mm -hmm. to clean too. Mm -hmm. But early on I'll start with a very large brush and yeah. I'll work from, to the smaller brushes. Mm -hmm. um, I paint the brush. It's a very, it's an old, like kids do, kids do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like those multicolor crayons or something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's not a, it's something that's been around forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but. I think about it in terms of like when you put a primary next to a secondary, or two primaries mm. and make a secondary, mm -hmm. and then I'll I'll space a secondary and a primary color with white or black, mm -hmm. and then and then I discovered that if on accident that I always wanted it to be the same bright color, but occasionally I would flip the brush over on accident mm. and I'd mix the colors. Uh -huh. and I found that the, the colors that happened accidentally like that mm. were much more sophisticated with the tertiary colors or or the secondary color just due to position on the brush would only half mix with the other color. Mm. And I found I found a lot of variation in just that. And mm. then the yeah, movement of the brush too, I then it wasn't the brushes are usually on an axis like left or right or up or down. Yeah. But by shaking the brush or vibrating the brush or mixing the brush, I could add mm. another another, you know, on the axis and up and down and yeah. left and right. And I get more information and more energy out of each stroke. Mm -hmm. And you're not Nothing. So every mark you're seeing is just, there's no corrections, is that kind of? I correct. You do correct. Okay. Yeah, because sometimes I just don't like the color. Yeah, okay. So you or, can change it. Yeah, or the brush <laughs> mark is just, mm -hmm. it's too powerful, it stands out, mm -hmm. it draws the eye, so then I'll pass another color over top of it transparently okay. to so tone it down. So you do use your own judgment a bit, but maybe... All the time. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. But does it, it feel like... And I read a little bit of the press release of saying, like, this came out of partly wanting to get away from too much rigidity or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting, because I wouldn't have guessed that, if, like I said, I feel like you seem like a free radical to me, so it doesn't... I'm surprised in a way that you felt like you had to kind of find a way to get away from rigidity. Well, I mean, I think my own... My own that was my own, we, we, I think, I, mean, I don't want to speak for my, everybody, but we're often our own worst enemies, yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I had to sort of find a way to, you know, like a machine that the gears are too tight, mm -hmm. even though it's a finely done machine, it still yeah. is, there has to be some play right. in there enough that, mm -hmm. like a transmission or something. Yeah. I had to give myself enough room that, that I could constantly have a, a new variable come into a system. Yeah. So if the system was too rigid, it would be. I hate our hard edge abstraction yeah. uh, for that reason. It's mm -hmm. just, or, yeah, it's just too. I had to give myself a, a balance of opposites. And I guess that's what, to me, is the most interesting in art: the mm -hmm. balance of opposites. I mean, that can be in everything from video art to yeah. figurative art. That's very it ha Yeah, it has <laughs> to have a. A dynamic that's moving, yeah, not stationary. Mm -hmm. I liked minimalism, 
but I like minimalism more in, in, in to think that at the same exact time pop art was happening. Yeah. And to see two, to see two, you're gonna get bit by a mosquito. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no, no. If it's he, he'll discover me and he's gonna forget you, <laughs> and he's gonna eat me. But yeah, I mean this sort of opposition between minimalism, the, the removal of all that's unessential, and the, yeah. the austere quality of minimalism, which I love so much. Mm, that's now, interesting. Yeah, to consider the act. The idea that, like, <laughs> what was going on at the same time in minimalism yeah. is wild. It is wild. I mean... Hanson, I mean, yeah. Rosenquist, Warhol. Yeah. It's wild. And, yeah, I mean, the aesthetic of your paintings does occupy a strange space, like... They're, they do feel like influx or there's a vibrational quality. Yeah. There's also like black holes that are yeah. kind of in there. Well, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty, on YouTube this video has been seen quite a bit, but you know about this term cymatics? No. It's, um, it, you've seen it, actually, you've seen it before. Mm. It's like, um, like a pan of, like a metal surface and they sprinkle sugar or dust or sand or salt on it and then they vibrate it with different frequencies and patterns oh, emerge. Okay. I've been thinking about this a lot <laughs> and reading about it. And you know, certain frequencies will produce a certain form. Mm-hmm. So they look like sea cucumbers and things. They they look like organic mm-hmm. like shells and things. Yeah. But as you ever watch a video, there's a great video made in the late seventies about Cymax, been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. But as the frequency changes, the pattern will become stationary and it'll move in a transition state where it wants to be one frequency and it wants to be another. It'll move between two patterns and if you just turn the frequency one octave up, which is like an order of magnitude difference, mm-hmm. like double, it, it will then produce a separate pattern completely different than the one previous. Mm-hmm. I thought about that shift from one pattern to the other. It's such a fascinating, not just, like, mathematically, some numbers just don't meet. Certain yeah. patterns don't meet other numbers. One number will be excluded from it, yeah. the pattern. This number will go on forever. Uh-huh. It's almost as if these shifts in frequencies are a literal boundary line. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated with the frequency, the shapes that emerge in between frequencies. Mm-hmm. They're constantly in motion, constantly in movement. And I think studying Tai Chi and martial arts, which is about the transitional state. I love DJing, I love music, mm-hmm. I love house music. I love the transition. The mm-hmm. drum fills are great. I love transitions. Yeah. Moving, traveling, why do we travel? Right. So I wanted the art, my paintings, my art always has to have some some element of a transitional yeah. state. Where minimalism, <clears throat> who said it? I think it's all the way. He said, the cube is shows no no movement. Right. It's stationary. It's maximum yeah. repose. Yeah, and I I find that to be very interesting. Now D- Donald Judd, if you've been to Marvel, yeah. he's dealing with the object's point of view moving in space, which I find very 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 interesting. I mean, you can see one of those boxes at Marfa. Mm-hmm. You look at it from one direction, it feels and looks a certain way, and you walk on the other side, it is a completely different yeah. object. The way he's dealing with them. Now, I mean that I guess one for Minimalism isn't just stationary. It can be dynamic as well. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, Carl Andre or Richard Serra yeah. has to deal with the 
in order to, for it to deal with transitions, it has to deal with you literally moving around it. Right, which maybe... my paintings are just stationary, so they have to move. Yeah, which kind of brings you to your senses, maybe? Like, it makes you more aware of your... Like, it's almost, like, meditative in that way, of, like, really bringing you into the mm. present. Like, I was surprised when I went to Marfa how beautiful it was like you're not just looking at these things with all their different materials and surfaces and angles but like they're just seeing the desert landscape like out the window at the same yeah, time there's like a deer out there yeah which i love that part yeah of it. well it's weird because when you think about like carl andre or richard Serra, some of the early minimalists mm -hmm. or even robert smithson yeah or uh not oh what was her name uh Oh, Nancy Holt, or oh, uh, she did these pretty beautiful minimalist cubes with the collar on them. With the collar? Yeah, like a very subtle shifts of collar. Um, Jackie something. Oh, anyway, Robert Smith <laughs> and these guys, they, without by putting it in the context of, of course, art. Yeah. They're dealing with that, which is a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. Let's just push that aside for a second uh -huh. and look at the object. Being that it was just, say, for instance, a car laundry on the floor. Yeah. It was activated, either you stepping onto it or step back and staring at it. Yeah. Because there wasn't a lot of information given to you, your mind filled that blank up. Mm -hmm. Was this supposed to be art? You start asking all these questions. Yeah. Look at a, look at a Fred Sandback. Yeah. How much presence mm -hmm. a couple lines of yarn yeah. can have in activating your the presence of space, the illusion of space, yeah. you moving in and out of it. Maybe. Compare that to a 25-ton Richard Serra curved arc Corten steel. Mm-hmm. You know, how much energy went to produce one to get an effect and how much one energy was produced to get the other effect. Yeah. I would say, I'd argue that a good Fred Sandback has more presence in one reaction mm -hmm. than a large Carl Andre can have, or equal to. Yeah, I mean, they're, they both, yeah, they're kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum, although they're both very, like, high drama in a way. Yeah. And they both, I do think, make you aware of the space and your body in relation to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the paintings I'm making now, I've been very fascinated with this guy, John Dee. He was uh, mm -hmm. in the 1600s. I think he was in yeah, 1600s. He was working with Elizabeth I, and he was a polymath. He was like the Stephen Hawking of his time. Oh, wow. And not only, he wrote the introduction to Euclid's uh, uh, treatise on math, but he also studied the occult deeply. Mm -hmm. And he actually, some, well, he said an angel gave it to him. I mean, of course, he was speaking like this, but he had an Aztec mirror. And there's two of them at the British Museum. You can go into the Enlightenment section, and the, the mirror that John Dee used to scry into, he stared into it, was, is there. And then there's another one down in the basement in the section the Aztecs. But the idea, it looks like a minimalist object. Mm. It looks like an iPhone turned off. It's <laughs> a black mirror. Whoa. And he stared into it and he saw things into it. The idea, it's like a, you know, the idea that you, when there's nothing given to you, that you you will project into it. Mm. It's like divination. So it is divination. Yeah. Yeah. Divination. And I kept thinking that with the paintings, what I noticed was starting to come out of the painting is, since it's flat, paintings offer you a window. Yeah. And 
what is being presented in the window. What am I presenting? And I thought, I would like to produce a magic mirror, like the black mirror of John Dee. Could I produce that, but in the opposite? Is it, that's a crazy thing to think of. Like, almost like, like, kind of trying to give form to the projections in a way, or the psychic space? I want, it'd be interesting if you could make the viewer aware of himself becoming aware of viewing it. Yeah. Where a magic mirror, you have to become aware that hey, I'm going to stare in this to get a, a result. Yeah. Or the minimalism activating the material, you know, like a material study, activating the, the person's presence and its interaction with this material and its space and the, also the institution in which it's held in. Mm-hmm. I... I wanna, I wanna play with those things. Mm-hmm. I wanna play with this. For instance, my video, you, you know. Yeah. These are ready-made objects. Yeah. I, I stole them all. I stole them all from the. I didn't steal them. They were given. They were put out on the internet. Yeah. They're put out on the internet, and I just took <laughs> Which them. Which is a kind of collective unconscious. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Look at porn. I know. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much of it. <laughs> yeah, there's so much of it. Well, that's probably also business-oriented. I think a lot of it's money. Right. It's easy to make. Sex sells and will always sell. And there will always, it will always be a big part of our unconscious, maybe, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Well, we can start over the whole thing But, like, more I mean... More wine? More wine? Yeah. <laughs> I think we should pull a tarot card at some point, Let's maybe. Let's pull one out now. Let's okay. see what happens. Let's okay. see what happens. You're still... <laughs> all of it. <laughs> um, I was thinking, also, you said transitions. Like, I feel like you've made a... You've made a way of painting that's almost like all transitions. All transitions. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all transition. But being the fact that it is a painting, it's constantly in a solid state. Do right. You Do you want shuffle? I'll shuffle. So we both We'll get a shuffling <laughs> sound. We'll get a shuffling sound. I'll shuffle then you cut it, okay? Okay. Okay, let's get a shuffling sound. Your 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 I little sound even. device looks like a spider or some sort of insect. It's like a cicada. Looks like a, you know, there's a brooding right now. I know. Now. There were, I just went to Baltimore and there was all, there was like deafening cicada yeah. sound. Sometimes it's, uh, I think it's a few years earlier, it happens in Ohio, my hometown. Mm-hmm. I'm so loud I call my mom and I can barely hear because it's not on the phone. <laughs> right, I'm going to do this one more time. It sucks because you see the car when you're shopping. I know, those are good ones. Your mind wants to see. (laughs) Okay, so you can cut the deck. Okay. I'll put this on top, and this is my card. Okay. What will it be? Do you do you look reversed or not? No. Okay, we won't look at reverses. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. The King of Cups. (laughs) What's interesting is that there's a little fish. To the bottom left. Yes. Isn't that unconscious? Isn't cups yeah. all about unconscious and emotion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. When there's the page of cups where the cup is looking at oh, the fish yeah. is looking at yeah, the yeah. cup at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is like I would interpret it as the sort of like the first the new idea. The new idea, it's mm-hmm. coming out of the coming out of the unconscious. And mm-hmm. It's it's the the use first um, sort of inclination that of his own mind, looking back at him, mm, right? it's a little Orborian mm-hmm. yeah. or Orboros. But he's got right next to it a ship. Mm. So there's a little yin yang, a boat yeah. and a fish. Mm-hmm. And then 
he's on this little interesting solid state. He's got a cup. He's like, isn't it about like being kind of in control of your emotions? I'd say yeah. 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 He's like floating above the like the waves. Yeah, he's he's in control of the forces that arrive out of the unconscious. That'd be the fish, and I think the ship maintains balance on the surface. Yeah. Like. And transition. Like <laughs> alligators and frogs are like in e ancient Egypt, and these things existed because these creatures were the creatures that represented that the ability to transcend in and out of that liminal state between consciousness and unconscious. Mm. Right. They were. The amphibians. Amphibians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They they represent. I think. Because there's that banding between consciousness and unconscious, yeah. that liminal state which we artists work with, musicians work yeah. with that state. I mean, you couldn't work with your true unconscious because you'd be unconscious. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't You know that, that, that uh, there are known knowns and known unknown unknowns, <laughs> which uh, Rumsfeld is infamous for. Oh, yeah. For Actually, he didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't he, say that. He said it, but... He didn't make that up. That was actually a mm. NASA an oh. astrophysicist had said that, and he just sort of hacked it up. Oh, but it's a real concept. Yeah. Yeah. Say it again. The known known. The known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much unknown unknowns. Well, I mean, the vast majority. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Exactly. Like that's more wisdom, isn't it? To just not like people in their teens and 20s think they know everything yeah that's how they think they're dumb when we get older <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you sort of almost can't blame them okay you know but i mean it's a very powerful state to be in you know to be so bold and in and not not deterred by doubt or something well i think that Oh boy, yeah. It's funny because religious fundamentalism and any indoctrinated, you know, totalitarian ideological belief is based yeah. on this idea that it has the answer. Right, that everything is, yeah. That it can be, it's like a template and you can superimpose it on it. This is why, like, you, with a lot of the college and universities right now, you can sort of, say, for instance, a critical theory or any sort mm -hmm. of deconstructivist ideology. It's a very powerful tool that you can take to, to deconstruct ideas, but when you take it as its totalitarian idea in itself, yeah. it, it, it's short-sighted, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, even, even Jungian analysis or dream analysis, you, you can only go so far with your own interpretations. You're going to need to get a therapist. Yeah. As I kind of, no matter how fast you turn around, you're not going to see the back of your head. Exactly. So you, you can't see something that's yeah. true. If it's... If it's truly unconscious, you're not going to see it. Exactly. Like, literally not at all. <laughs> so when you think about, you know... Well, I mean, there, you know, with Freud or Jung and the early, early psychoanalysts, then there were people like Piaget, mm -hmm. if you, like, who were looking at the unknowns in collective groups. Mm. Like, I have fascinating stories about... Like, well, Winnicott, about the... He wrote, a, wrote an interesting article called The Object in Transition about how... The child separates himself from the mother and sees his, how the mm -hmm. how basically a child slowly becomes aware of the fact that he's separate from the mother, mm -hmm. and when the father enters the picture, or 
Rene Girard's Mimetic Desire, mm -hmm. how you give like five children the same toy and they'll still fight for each other's toy. <laughs> because they don't want the object, they want mm. they want the other person's desire for the object. Right. They'll, they'll mirror it. That's the art world's completely full of <laughs> someone liking an artist and suddenly everyone loves it. Yes, I mean, that's, yeah. That's art. That's what the market's based on, right? That's everything. <laughs> yeah. Rene Girard's ideas are huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, 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 they explain so many things. They do they do not explain a few things, but, yeah. but Piaget was talking in terms of, like, you have children playing a game, and the game is organically being produced. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, as they're playing it, kids make games up all the time. Yeah. And games are just dictated by rules. Yeah. And what happens is when a large group of children start to play, um, you know, one kid will go a little too far, and everyone says, you, you can't do that. <laughs> but he, PJ realized, when studying childhood development, uh, and he had these layers, when you get a certain age, you start to delineate ideas differently. Mm that if you pull any of the kids out of the game, no one child knew the entire rules of the game. Mm. They sort of unconsciously, collectively played the game. Mm -hmm. And the collective like was the mind game. behind it. It was bigger than yeah. it was bigger than each kid's individual understanding of the game. Mm -hmm. And I think that the King of Cups would be an interesting interpretation of this idea that he sort of sits on top of that mm -hmm. as a sort of knowing that there's... The fish is not suppressed in this. The yeah. boat is not, you know, I think it's going to go up and down with the waves. I think it's about a balance. And so many of these, I would, I would go a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Notice to the left of him, one of the pillars of his chair is visible. Mm -hmm. Now, every king is sitting on a throne. Notice how his yellow cloak obscures the other yeah. pillar of his chair. Mm -hmm. I think it means that that, because the pillar is like of a, of all the other, the, the, high, the, the high priestess, the empress, there's pillars, yeah. Boaz, the white and black uh, pillars that you see frequently mm -hmm. are the devil card. Mm -hmm. I think this represents the fact that the unconscious is cloaking mm -hmm. the other side. To us, on the card is the left-hand side, mm -hmm. which is associated with the unconscious. Yeah. Like left-handed cigarette, left-hand yeah, yeah. hat, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting, you know, these wider rate tarot deck is very very deep i know it's very like i also there's the colors which i don't really know the symbolism of but i imagine there's symbolism well there. yes yellow alchemically yellow represents sulfur mm -hmm. uh, red is oftentimes fire it can also be uh, with with blue being mercury mm -hmm. uh, the, the original seal of the united states has these colors as well mm -hmm. With the stars and the, the heavens of ferment. And mm -hmm. So you have, you know, sulfur itself is fire, but you can see um, different interpretations of the colors here. Uh, the alchemical process. Citronella, citron is actually one of the rare ones as far as green, but it's usually black, white, mm -hmm. red, mm -hmm. and green. Like different al alchemical versions have different Alchemy colors. Alchemy is like transition, too. It's all about transition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, this seems like a good card for your work in some way, like kind of uh, controlled chaos or something. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, he has a little fish that pins his clothing together, another <laughs> fish right at his chest. I didn't notice that uh, part. Is it a fish? It yeah, looks like yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. We know that Christ was a fish. Yeah. Yeah. Were you raised religiously? Never. 
Really? Saying, completely. Yeah. Not atheists. They weren't against religion. They just sort of went, I got a really hand of my parents. They just sort of let me do whatever I yeah, wanted. Yeah. I was yeah. mostly the same. I mean, my mom was Jewish. My dad was raised Catholic, but they were both pretty non-religious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think psychedelics play such a role. Mm. You, you mentioned, and I always, I'm always cautious about going down the psychedelic reading of my work because it's yeah. too, it's too to, to call it digital or psychedelic would be too, to put it in the realm of the sign. Yeah. It's not an illustration no. of psychedelic. It has like, yeah, like touches of that, but I don't feel like it lands in either of them really. It's definitely influenced. Not by visual, mostly by psychedelics. Mm, mm -hmm. The most, I didn't believe in any sort of spirituality, but when I was 17, I, I, I took LSD and had a very profound, profound mm. revelation. I realized this must be what a religious experience is, is yeah. what people talk about when mm -hmm. they read this. And I've had other versions of that throughout different periods of time in my life. Yeah that without a doubt if I was to just speak frankly about it or, or the most I went to school because of a psychedelic experience really? I went to college mm -hmm. I I've broken up with people mm -hmm. because of it because you do you think that was like um that it kind of helped you access a deeper part of yourself yes more specifically it, it allowed me to look at what I Maybe the shadow yeah. what I was suppressing. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it revealed my unconscious and it's closer to what is total, you know, balanced state. Yeah. Particularly with the King of Cups here. I remember when I lived in Japan, I was on my second year there, somebody gave me um, uh, ecstasy and I hadn't done anything like that for two years mm -hmm. at a club and I took it mm -hmm. and immediately every all the emotions that I'd suppressed come yeah. came so clear and I knew that I had to leave. Mm, ecstasy is a heart opener. <laughs> Ironically, I find it more difficult to do than LSD. Maybe. I, because my emotions are so, <laughs> I'm such a head guy. I'm yeah, so, right. That the makes heart sense. Is, is I mean, suppressed. I think that is the masculine orientation, right? Or at least yeah. in our culture or something. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that seems good. Like I heard about people using ecstasy for couples therapy actually and I thought oh, that I was think a good idea. <laughs> scary to me, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well it could be it's real intense. <laughs> oh I mean I know it would work. Yeah. I, I, I've seen it work. <laughs> I felt it work, but sometimes situations get to the point where you have to deal it out yeah. slowly. I mean just opening the floodgates could be awesome. Yeah. It could be oh my god, it could be a nightmare if the well, couple's I, not ready, ready yeah. for it. The next, I find the come down is very, that's, I, I think that was probably my favorite drug, but I'm, the come down is so intense for me that I find it, like, I feel kind of catatonic the Yeah, next it's, a, day. it's a bit of a yin-yang drug. Yeah. There, there have been a lot of studies with, um, with post-traumatic stress, a lot of, mm, my, mm -hmm. you know, my brother was talking, he's in the military, both my brothers are in the military. Um, my brother Zach, he's, uh. It was in the, more in the medical aspect of things, but we were talking about this idea of um, PTSD and what, what drugs are used, and they don't have a tendency to use ecstasy because of its calm down. Mm. So other drugs like ketamine, which don't flood the brain with endorphins mm. or dopamine or serotonin, and, you know, where you have drugs like stress hormones like cortisol or adrenaline with mm -hmm. acute stress, 
you want to make sure that you don't, you know, give a someone su suffering from post-traumatic stress a, like a you, you know, you just drain all their <laughs> yeah. serotonin out of their body for it's very dangerous. Yeah. You know, very dangerous because you can come up with a secondary revision after yeah. your experience that could be equally as distorted as yeah. the high point that you were having when the revelation happened. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful with giving people an up and down yin yang experience like that when there's under a, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Ketamine is, I think, more effective for that. Really? Yeah. I've only done that once and I feel like I was uh, high on something else. It was a long time ago. So I don't really feel like I've had a full experience of that. I don't. People party with it. I can't believe they party with it. Yeah. It's such a profound drug just to meditate with. And I've been experiment, experimenting with it and I find it to be the most curious drug. The most curious. It's like disassociative, right? Is that right? Y yes. So you kind of, meaning you don't, you're, you're kind of looking at yourself from the outside of it, or you don't have emotions, or how does it? Uh, you can still have emotional responses to thoughts, but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. You're maybe not attached to them? Yeah, like I said, this not, you're not flooding the brain with these good good feeling vibes mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. what I mean and the calm down is not you're not going to like to have a serotonin depletion mm -hmm. um, there is sort of a baseline is the bottom is sort of raised to the baseline this is why they can with soldiers for instance they can talk them through difficult situations that may have been problems ironically they found out most of the soldiers weren't traumatized by a particular experience they had but a particular experience unlocked earlier traumas from their youth. Oh, interesting. So it was the shock of war or the, the trauma that happened during war, it actually unlocked kind of all, the, the, all the stuff they were suppressing. Whoa, that's interesting. I've yeah. never heard that before. So they start first with the traumatic experience and then they work their way back to the earlier trauma. Mm. There's different like, techniques. But we've all trauma on some level. It's just part of life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but mostly we repress it because we can't handle it. Yeah. 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 But it's weird because Freud saw it a little differently. Mm-hmm. He saw, n not that one's right or wrong. Yeah. That the unconscious mind was sort of coming up into the conscious mind and threatening it. Mm -hmm. with the unconscious forces that society in its development had suppressed. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, his Oedipus complex and things like this, these are taboos. In his right. book, Totem and Taboo, he wrote about this. In his book, Civilization's Discontents, he talked about this. Mm -hmm. um, that, that we had to then fortify our, our, our waking state, our ego and our consciousness in order to keep that, the unconscious contents from pressing into our conscious lives. Young, mm -hmm. on the other hand, had a different version. He saw the unconscious as pulling the consciousness down. Mm -hmm. Where F Freud had a sort of pressure down from, you know, keeping it down, from, you know, pressing it down from above. Yeah. Young said, "No, it's the other way around. We need to go down into it and understand what's pulling the, f pulling it down." They just see it com in a completely opposing directions, mm. which is why you know, Young, they're both dealing with the idea that we have to make unconscious content known. Yeah. But the way in which they responded to it and, and then connect connecting it into. Uh, you know, for instance, archetypes. Young Freud only had one, and it was an Oedipus. Uh huh. But I was just in Freud's office in London. We went, oh, cool! I went there. That's awesome. And the irony is that his office is full of religious symbology. Yeah. He's got thousands of these religious icons, 
gods, goddesses, yeah. all over his desk. I mean, he was fascinated with that concept. You think someone like Young would have a room full of iconography like that? Right. That's interesting. Yeah, because they had very like Freud was pretty dismissive of religion and spirituality, and Young kind of embraced it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's strange because, you know, Young's father was a was a pastor, mm -hmm. but. You know, Young had the vision of a god shitting on the church yeah. and weird shit like that. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I think we can get into that a long, for a long time. How long does this go? You just edit it? Is that what happens? I don't even edit that much, but I can. Like, it's we haven't we haven't gotten we haven't gotten anything that needs to be edited out yet. No, no. no, no. I we feel... should pull a card during the second. Okay. Your card. My card. You um, want to shuffle? You should shuffle. Okay, I like am bad at shuffling. Like, I don't know. How do you do it like you do it? Well, there's different. There's different. That, that's, you know, if the cards are too big for your hands, just do yeah. it. Yeah, I just do it like this. Yeah, do it like that. Yeah. Right, don't forget this card. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. Do you think, do you feel, when you're painting, do you feel more in touch with your emotions? I've stabbed paintings with my paintbrush. I've kicked them. I've pissed on them. I've just thrashed them. Wow. But I don't do that anymore. You know, I mm -hmm. really... I don't know. I'm more... Here, here's something interesting. Mm -hmm. Prior to the paintings I'm making now, I could not... I could not... I'm going to cut it again. Okay. This is your card. Oh, that's an excellent card. Mm. That's one of my favorite cards. Is it? Yes, it is. I feel like I don't... It's about... Well, it's the Three of Pentacles. Yeah. I don't have a, like, super strong feeling about oh, this, this card. This is an so excellent I'm card. I'm to hear your interpretation. It is a artist working on his project. Mm. And his, uh, either, if you see what happens is it's the person who probably paid for it and the monk of the church. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of two patrons that are coming to see a work in progress. Yeah. He's got a mauling object in his hand. There's two types of hammers used in masonry. Mm -hmm. this, there's one hammer that's used for chipping the stone away. That's at the beginning of the project. This, this object here is for moving a stone that's already formed and putting it into place. So it means he's putting the final touches mm. on a project. Not, I like that. Yeah. I have a stone so, And look, he's elevated up on this thing. He's still mm. he's got an apron on. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's working, he's got an apron on, he's up on this thing, mm -hmm. his left hand is up, and they're looking and they're discussing his, his, his progress up to this point. Yeah. So it's, as an artist, it's a good card. It's about mm -hmm. people are admiring your work, uh -huh. they're looking at you and your process, <laughs> they're talking. It's about us right now. Yeah. It's, a, it's about a process, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a process. Yeah. This is the card about process. And it's about, yeah, like, it's, it's a... Is it, you're like, yeah, honing your craft. Honing your craft, yeah. talking about the craft. Yeah, people are taking notice. And yeah. Interest. It's one of the few cards that's totally balanced as well. I mean, there's so mm. many balances in the cards. Mm -hmm. There's such a lot of black of kind of this space is very weird, like a void kind of. Yeah, yeah, you're but right. a kind of mystery maybe. Yeah, you're right. There's some red creme trail going back there in that cave. Mm-hmm. At the center of it, you get two crosses. You have a flower mm -hmm. with a cross in the middle between the two arches where they meet. Mm -hmm. 
you know, in in gematria and, and geometry, the three always hides the four. What does that mean? Just in the study of geometry. Uh huh. With the monad, the dyad, going mm -hmm. into the one going into two going into three and then the three when the three hit there is a hidden four. Oh. and then five which is of course already in the pentacle itself uh-huh and when five is a kind of hit so many five is the shape of um hidden within the pentagram is the fibonacci sequence it's mm. pythagoras talked about it non-stop. Mm -hmm. If you want to see something fascinating, Walt Disney produced a Donald Duck documentary about Pythagoras. Oh, I think I might have seen that. Is he like playing pool in no, it? No, no, he's not playing pool, I don't think. Oh. He's oh. playing music with, uh, he's, 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 oh. he's jiving and jamming, but it's it's really, it's really well done, and oh. it's actually long, and That's it goes cool. into why flowers have the, the, the pentagram oh. in it, and how each one of the it's a 90 degree meets a 30, 30 degree angle here. Mm -hmm. And how each one of these pieces of it equal the, the Fibonacci sequence in their division of space. Mm -hmm. So watch the Donald Duck, just Google <laughs> Donald Duck Pythagoras, <laughs> okay. Walt Disney. That sounds cool. I'll oh. put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, show notes. <laughs> um, it, it's so well done. That's cool. You can't believe that that it was on TV for kids. It's I mean, I feel like people had a more sophisticated... Well, I don't really know, but I feel like maybe kids had more sophisticated things to interact with at a certain time. So your cat rips apart your couch like this, <laughs> yeah. yeah? My couch is a living artwork. <laughs> I was drawing a lot on it, so it's very stained with, like, ink and things, but kind of fine because it's just like I got it from an ex-boyfriend a long time ago. <laughs> well, you know, the cat is making his own work on I know. It. Yeah, it's a collaborative piece. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this card reminds me of um, Andre Rublev or something, too. I love that movie. Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies is of all it? time. Yeah, I love I movies. actually, full disclosure, haven't seen the whole of it. Oh, I've, the like, end not is made so... The end, is, the end is everything. Tell me... The young bellmaker at the end. I won't just you know because remember the young bellmaker. He's he's looking. He says his father told him the secret of how to make a bell, and he's trying to gather all the mm -hmm. all the you know all the metal and the mm -hmm. silver he's trying to grab. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. The mace has got their eyes gouged out in that. I don't think I made it that far. I like need to watch it. Like I feel like I have to watch it in a theater though. Right, it's one of the greatest movies. Yeah, I mean I love Tarkovsky. It's like. It's really long and intense, though. <laughs> I started to watch it by myself when Julie was in London. Mm -hmm. This is a couple, few, uh, was about four, four years ago, I think. Yeah. And I had to stop it because I realized this is so good. I want to share it with you. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it is really the end of that movie is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna watch. And then I watched Solaris <laughs> after that. I didn't like Solaris as much while watching it. Uh huh. But I realized after I'd see, seen it. I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I actually mm -hmm. thought about it a lot more, because mm. it was his answer to 2001, yeah. which to me is the greatest movie ever made. Is it? Yeah. To you? Yeah. Interesting. And Solaris, I think, is his most, like, I would say, his most, like, 
digestible movie. Like, it's his most But it's also very deep. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's about suppressed, repressed, yeah. unconscious things coming. Yeah. It's really weird. It's about the surface. Yeah. It's about isolate. It's really weird. But 2001 usurps it for you. Yeah, because... <laughs> I'll tell you why. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> may, it, may I be so bold yeah. to tell you why it's the greatest movie ever made? It takes into consideration, and it goes so deep into the subjective and the objective, mm. the universe, and the individual. Yeah. It even goes so far as to go into the viewer watching the movie screen, which is what, which there's been a recent interpretation by Rob Agar. Ag, 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 Aguirre, I think I say his name, mm. uh, with the, his, um, oh my god, what's the name of his channel on YouTube? Collative Learning. Uh-huh. He has done an excellent interpretation of what the monolith represents. Mm. And it's not just a super superimposed idea. I think, without a doubt, he was on the right suggestion, which... Turn it on. Why is there three minutes plus of a black screen with this music playing before mm. the movie even starts? Mm -hmm. Where do you see that music again? You realize that you're staring at the monolith for the first three minutes and you don't realize what you're looking at. You are, you are the monkey Whoa. at the beginning. And the monolith is the movie screen. And you're, you're literally partaking in the experience of of your evolution, of your consciousness, of what the movie's about. Yeah, you... it, I mean, the fact that Kubrick was that much of a genius. Yeah. It's like when I, I, I compare it, <laughs> I compare it to Isaac Newton. Uh-huh. Who, like, when he made the Principia, Principia, how you pronounce it, when he made the um, Principia, people said, well, what's more, what's more impressive, the fact, what the information in it, or the fact that somebody thought it up? Mm -hmm. I'm more is it more amazing that the movie exists or that one man made it? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's fascinating. That movie is so good. <laughs> and you can't believe at the time how old it is. Yeah. And then what the matter, subject matter that's going on in the movie it is about everything. It's as relevant now as it was the day it came out. And it'll be relevant forever. Well, it's very ambitious in scope, yeah. And it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it talks about the suppression of information through the government. Mm. You know, remember, speaking of now, how do they hide this bigger idea? They make a fake pandemic. In that movie? In that movie. Pay attention at the beginning. <laughs> there's, a, there's a pandemic. There's a sickness going around it. And they use the sickness to obscure the fact there's a much bigger thing going mm. on in the background. Mm -hmm. But you see the actors play the role of somebody who's pretending that there's a pandemic. And then they go oh, on. I don't and, remember that. And there's part actually at all. a white screen when they meet early on in the mm -hmm. background. You realize it's all. Are they really on the moon? Where are they? Right. It's really strange. And then they go. It's. I won't. I won't give it away. Uh, Collative Learning 2001 uh, and analysis is online. You can. I'll find it and put a link. To yeah, it's that fascinating. Too. But that, yeah. I think that's why that movie is the greatest movie ever made in, in its scope and. And what it's capable of achieving. Mm. Do you is is film pretty important to you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so, do you think Kubrick is he's made the best film? But do you think he's like the best director or your favorite director? Oh, I, I mean, I, I hate to say things like that. I mean, there's so like, many movies I like. Yeah. 
Tchaikovsky's so, so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that I don't like really dumb movies, too. I think, yeah. Punch, I think Punch Drunk Love had such an effect on yeah. me. Yeah. It I led to a breakup. Did it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it, there are movies that are like, you know, sort yeah. of like, who knows who thought an Adam Sandler movie would change me. You know, yeah. Paul really, Thomas Anderson makes great movies, yeah. as you know. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> that one, I loved that movie at the time. Also, I haven't revisited it, but yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I haven't revisited it either, but... Yeah, but I... But yeah, it was a big impact on me. Maybe not a breakup, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I recently watched Harold and Maude again. It's funny, someone was talking about that the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. He did did being there. Yeah, being there. Um, There's another one with Jane Fonda, Coming Home, I guess it's called. Well, being there is an alchemical movie. Say more about that. <laughs> it is very much. Um, there were so many hidden mystical and esoteric teachings in being there mm. that you have to study it. Peter Sellers, the the actor in that, was raised in Chelsea Lodge in London. He was a Freemason. He was very very deep into esoteric thinking. Wow. And that movie has to do with the levels of understanding. As you were, as you yeah. sort of go up the levels of esoteric thinking, that movie is very, very deep. Yeah, that's interesting. Speaking of deep, I mean, literally, he takes a stick, he walks on water, he checks the depth of it. The very last set, seen the movie mm. over I, a pyramid with an eye on it. I haven't watched that in a very long time either. But now that I'm, and I don't remember that scene at this moment, but yeah, well, it's he's about, kind of like yeah, he's weird, seen right? as an idiot, but in his simplicity, like people think he's kind of. Is he an idiot? But that's the thing, yeah. Maybe yeah. he is a genius for being so, like... Is it a reversed Forrest Gump? <laughs> I hate Forrest Gump. But is it a reversed Forrest Gump? Yeah. Um, meaning he's... seem He appears kind of retarded, but is actually kind of deeply wise in his simplicity or something. Yeah, or is it the way we interpret it? Yeah. It's really weird. Well, that's kind of what it's... Like, people are interpreting him as being... They believe him to be what he's kind of stumbled into, What's funny, because right? in Trumpet Thunder, he says, never go full retard. Yeah. And he says, Peter sells him being there. He mentions him, like, he doesn't oh. go full. He, he mentions it. He mentions it. Right. He just... Forrest like, Gump? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just doesn't... He, like, doesn't say that much, so... Everything he says. He's not Gilbert Grape. He doesn't go full Gilbert Grape. He doesn't go Sean Penn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very restrained, actually, because he doesn't say that much, kind of, right? Well, it's about the action that happens, not what's said, what's what's seen and heard. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Chauncey Gardner. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um. Yeah, it's really weird because he's never left that house. Right. It makes me kind of... I feel like it's been a really long time since I watched it, but I think... Like, I think I kind of feel sad. That character makes me a little sad. Like, I want to protect him or something. Yeah, it's weird, too. There's this, like, social commentary in the background. It's always on the TV. Mm-hmm. And there's like, a lot of the race like issues. Like Reagan. Era. Yeah, yeah. And, like, yeah. you see how bad this... He realized that he's sort of born again and he, as he comes out of the house when his owner dies mm-hmm. he's got this apron there's yeah. this orange window he says there's once a door here and then he's out and then oh, he yeah. realizes he's in a bad neighborhood and then he's very alone and uh, he innocent goes that, he goes in that <laughs> elevator he doesn't even know what an elevator is 
Very strange. I think that makes me a little sad. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess it's so the in the pureness of him is like sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's part of it. It's about that innocence, loss of innocence, mm-hmm. or the keeping of what part of the innocence that we do keep. Yeah. Without getting too polluted, I guess. Yeah. It's weird going back to two thousand and one. It's such a weird another reason why I think 2001 is so great is because all the reversals that happen in it mm-hmm. like, like the what? computers how oh. acts human but humans in that are acting like computers but evil <laughs> is it evil or is it just self preservation because mm-hmm. it shows the same thing happening first the monkeys get on the level of revelation mm-hmm. and then the computer knows it first yeah. And it says, it's almost as if Hal wants to know what's there. Mm. And it says, the, va- the mission is too valuable. I couldn't, oh. let you, I couldn't let you mess it up. Yeah. It's greater than right. humans. Yeah. It's about consciousness. Yeah. And then he has to, he gets out of the ship and he has to go in to the analog. And he, he overrides and he has to go back to analog. You could say that section in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker takes off the little thing and he has to shoot the whole... Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to the Death Star, and he, he doesn't use the guidance system. He just uses his intuition. He shoots mm-hmm. a hole. Yeah. It's the same thing with 2001, where he has to override the system, and he, he has to unratch each door analog, and yeah. he goes into the brain, and he he makes the computer go back to a child singing children's songs. Yeah. And what happens is a human appears, and says, this is what's really going on. There's a secret mission hidden inside the mission. Mm. We've discovered something out in space. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to it. It's so fascinating. <laughs> that makes me think of that meme. Have you seen that meme where it's like two astronauts and they're like... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's only Ohio. It's been Ohio all along. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that makes me think of, like, I don't know, we are talking about innocence and... I don't know, at some point you were talking about the, like sand playstation in the Jungian office and and I had a thought in the back of my head of like of wondering do you do you feel like it feels like you kind of created this process or this like program in a way if you will to make your paintings now it feels like you have this program but you can kind of fuck with it, or it doesn't completely. The program your... doesn't make the painting. I yeah. have to be. I have to be engaged yeah. in the program as right. it's working. Right. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to like. Yeah. There's Hal, and then there's you can kind of. You have the ultimate <laughs> control or whatever. But um, I was wondering about, like you, the side of games or play. Like so, you've kind of created these rules in a way. Uh, games are made by limits. Yeah. That's where Saul yeah. Lewitt was an interesting artist because he worked with the boundaries he set. Yes. But if you see, as Lewitt progressed, he actually made him like loose. Really? His last works, particularly in the late 90s, were very, mm-hmm. very loose. It, but his, his original works with like, okay, one, two, three, four, red, yellow, you know, yeah. red, yellow, blue, plus gray, you know, horizontal, vertical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's more variables as he went on? Well, he was saying at the beginning, he was like, okay, if you get this many variables, 
how long can you go before those variables exhaust themselves? Mm -hmm. And then that was the art. Right. And he just kept adding more variables, and, and the project would grow in, in form. It was like a mathematical equation that just had, until, yeah. he, until he realized that every time you added another variable, it, it, it would, like, in an order of magnitude, go, go greater until he could fill, a, you know, a mass milk. He, he actually had the ability, well, of course, he passed away at the time, but you actually could see that happen mm -hmm. until they were exhausted. Now, there was more of a Dadaist idea with the project that the one last one I did at Paul Cooper, where arc, arcs, all of there's arcs, and then you kind of basically grab out of a hat in a Dada style until mm. you fill up all the squares. So there's a chaos, chance, yeah. his wavy lines, all the, when he, towards the end of his life, it got way more open. Mm. Do you, I guess what I was thinking about is like, do you feel a sense of play when you're making your painting? To be honest, at the very beginning, yes. Mm -hmm. Midway through, I want to jab my eye out with a paintbrush. <laughs> uh -huh. But then as it starts to hit that point where I can then start to see something that I really start to get interested in it again. And mm -hmm. I have to almost be careful because I can destroy it. Mm -hmm. I can destroy a thousand hours of work. A thousand hours. <laughs> Forty hours of work. Yeah. Just because a decision wants to happen. And I've actually... Said shit. I wish I could have made that decision early on and right. planned it. But the nature of the painting is it. I don't know. It just yeah. Someone says, okay, I need to put a big black spot there, and then that means I'm painting over twenty percent of the painting. That yeah. Sometimes it's difficult, but I have to do what the painting demands. Yeah. <laughs> you. It's the mission is bigger than you. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. Right. I'm how at that point. Like. Yeah. Yeah. That. But Dave, yeah. Dave has got to go. <laughs> But so each, there's a lightness in the beginning because everything's open, but as yeah. it pro progresses, there, everything becomes more crucial, kind of. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, it's almost like physics. Mm -hmm. Like the fat, you know, like the superconductors, superconductors. Um, I've heard those words. Yeah, well, okay, it's <laughs> like, well, like, there's a law. There's like a, lim like, like a, like a universal, uh, you know, the speed of light's like the universal limit. Like uh -huh. the speed limit. The thing. Yeah. And as they push these particles faster and faster, these exterior, they have this like, thing called a gravitron, synchrotron, gravitron, synchrotron, sinks these particles up, it spins them out, these steering magnets push these particles, and they push one particle counterclockwise, and they push another particle clockwise. And they keep, like, a, like on a swing, they keep giving up magnetic pull. They strip first, the gravitron, synchrotron removes all the positive, it makes them positive. Mm -hmm. it's, removes the negative charge from the particle, so it makes them one charge, and they can then push them. Mm. So, they, so you have particles spinning, this thing, it's like, it's massive, the, 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 the Large Hadron Collider, it goes over three countries, it's like Sweden and France, it, it goes over, so we get, they keep pushing it, and this particle, when it hits close to the speed of light, that energy doesn't know where to go, so that particle gets, gets, just gets heavier and heavier. Mm -hmm. Since it can't go faster, that energy manifests as, as, as mass. Mm -hmm. But like a 50 car whose limit is 50 miles an hour hits another car at 50 miles an hour, it's a 100 mile an hour crash. Right. So the steering magnets push the particles together and you break, you break a law of nature. So you push a, a particle near the speed of light, mm -hmm. it's mass, it's, at that point it's very heavy. Mm -hmm. 
and then you ram it into another particle near the speed of light, and you get twice the speed of light, which is impossible. Uh-huh. So what happens is, where does the energy, when they collide, they, they, they amazing things happen. They pull, the energy has to go somewhere. It pulls matter out of nothing, apparently. Yeah. And you see these little, on a bubble chamber, they spiral to the left, and they spiral to the right. There's some positive and negative charges on these particles. Higgs bosons, WZ bosons. Neutrinos, all kinds of things appear. They just appear and they disappear. They only exist briefly. Mm. It like pulls matter out of nothing. Because mm -hmm. it, it has to manifest somehow. Mm. So it's pulling out of areas that we don't know. Mm -hmm. That are beyond. That, it, it sounds crazy, but I mean, these superclouded supernovas are making things that we've never seen before because it's not that they're coming out so yeah. much of the particle that we've exploded or collided. Pulling it out of matter. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a kind of alchemy or yeah, of course. magic yeah, or right. something. Yeah. Well, I mean, alchemy is what? You have a jar at Amblick. Mm -hmm. You're heating it up. You're putting your material in there. Mm -hmm. And you're heating it up over long periods of time. And then if it's sealed, no energy can leave. So this process happens. And we see the whitening, the grido, calcinado. You mm -hmm. see these things happening inside the vessel. And, of course, the alchemist is looking. Mm -hmm. He's interpreting. He's superimposing. He's wondering what's happening in there. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's like one of the earliest dreams I had in therapy. My therapist, I had a dream where I was cooking a mason jar full of liquid. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by it. This is before I was even thinking like this. Yeah. And my therapist opened up the door. And he said, aren't you forgetting something? In the dream. In my dream. Yeah. And I said, no, everything's in there. <laughs> and he said, no, you need to put the lid on it. Oh. And I realized it was about, I can't talk about what's going on in therapy. I had to kind of keep the heat. Mm, keep the lid on it. And to kind of <laughs> generate the heat. Generate yeah. The, it's like when you go into dream analysis, you're then starting the, the, the heating process. Mm -hmm. You're unconscious. When you start a painting, when you start a work of art, and you're engaged in it that way, you're starting a process of transformation. Yeah. And your relationship to the object, the art object, uh -huh. and you is profound. Yeah. And it's in its exchange of energy. Mm -hmm. Now, if I was to turn around, sometimes I play drums or something, and I, I have to take some of that energy and take yeah. it out. I mean, I try to keep as much of it in as I possibly can mm -hmm. and sublimate all that energy back into the painting. But yeah. to be honest, sometimes I can't, I can't take it. Yeah. I mean, that seems healthy though to like maybe even doing having a full and balanced life could work its way into the painting you know like I was talking to someone about like you know in the 50s or whatever that whatever like Gustin and Barnett Newman all those people like it wasn't un wasn't uncommon for someone had their first solo show at like 50 you know yeah so you have all this life experience and also in actually in analysis and the second half of life is like this next level thing yeah. where you're really going inward and stuff so like that makes sense to me in a way aren't you glad i'm so glad i never got famous in my 20s yeah, or 30s totally you know i would be insufferable i would have not i would have been it would have been very fast it my would work would have been real shitty, shitty but, yeah, right? yeah. Then i could try it's funny because you know, you've seen the artist that you would have been get famous you're like, Ugh. yeah <laughs> well it seems i've seen it like 
go bad too where they did have it but it didn't last like you know they couldn't sustain that forever and they're kind of like broken by it too I, I mean not to name any names but I've been thinking about just pick up I recommend anybody listening to this <laughs> pick up an art forum from 8 years ago yeah or with by any catalog yeah pick it up where are they now I know most of them you haven't heard anything yeah. about it's kind of it's scary <laughs> yeah it's very scary and with social media and Instagram and, and then the market speeding up so fast that auction houses are hungry for new material constantly yeah. and then the flipping rate is so fast right now yeah. it's influenced by so many things that it's a very dangerous place to be a young artist right now because I mean look at the zombie formalism people like Lucy and Smith yeah. and Parker Ito what happened to that stuff? No, I don't I mean, Jeff Elrod yeah. barely made it out of that. I mean, yeah. I mean, so many artists didn't, you know. I mean, some did. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like Albert Olin, I think, is a fantastic. He's one of the yeah. best fucking painters. He's great. He he made it through that. Mm -hmm. Albert Olin made. You know, there's some painters like I, I mentioned before. I think Thomas Scheibitz or Scheibitz, I don't pronounce it, but Scheibitz. He's such a fantastic painter. He never really went all the way, but he, he continued to make very good paintings. Mm -hmm. Very good paintings. Maybe. Christopher Wool went yeah. so long, though he's kind of. <laughs> Richard Prince as well. Yeah. Well, Richard Prince and Olin both had very, like, they have a lot of different, like, tricks in their belts or something. You know, yeah. they're both very divergent kind of painters. They don't have just one thing they're doing over and over, so maybe that enabled them to kind of keep going more. Right. What's her name? Oh, there's a couple painters right now. This painter, Lucy Mink, I think she's a good painter. I'm following her, yeah. but I don't know much about her. Well, it's I had this discussion with a guy that uh, in, in London. Mm -hmm. He said it's funny because, like, Albert Owen is a better painter than Richard Prince. Mm -hmm. Richard Prince is a better artist. Interesting. I mean, Richard Prince, <laughs> I think, is a more of a... I mean, this might be a... I would think he's more of a conceptual artist than a painter, and Olin's a real painter. Yeah, like, some of the artists I like are really good painters. Yeah. You know, really good painters, but... But, yeah, I, I, I do struggle with the idea of a good artist and a good painter. Yeah, sometimes. like, what the distinction is? Yeah. Do I mean, I, I, don't, I don't struggle. I know what the distinction is, but... Oh. I find myself in, very, very, very much uh, enticed by... The artist model, like the conceptual model. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I think you are a painter more. Like, I mean, it well, seems like others will argue that. <laughs> really? I don't know. I don't. I don't draw any distinction because some people say you're not really a painter. Some people said that to me. Really? Yeah. Weird. I mean, I think as someone who only re semi recently decided to call myself a painter, like. <laughs> you're pretty conceptual. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I'm an idea person, I would say, which is maybe why it's been hard for me to kind of focus in on something and keep going with it. Like, yeah. I have so many ideas, so I want to... You, you did this painting a while ago. It was like a sail of a boat. Oh, yeah. Well, my early... It was a very good painting. <laughs> oh, so I thought, thanks. oh, my God, because what is a sail of a boat? It was, um, they were windsurfing sails. It was kind of my working through my weird love-hate with Julian Schnabel for a while. Uh, yeah, he's a good love-hate guy, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I do like him, but sometimes I think I was jealous of him because he was so, like, I'm a painter and, and I have no doubt and I n never felt that way and, and then 
I realized I could just be a painter and not be like grinding an axe against him or something. I hate Julian Schnabel. Do you? Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe I'm just being. I have to pee. Okay. So maybe this is a good way to end. But uh, no, I just I've always had an abject rejection of that man in his art. <laughs> I mean, I think he's real hit or miss. Like, I think some of his work is terrible. Well, let me ask you what you like about him. Um, well, I like his... I like. I think what I, fascinated me is partly just his bravado and confidence. Like, okay, he's so, yeah. like, big dick energy. Oh, totally. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be like that. It's like he chode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think a lot of his work, like, more so... The stuff with, like, found objects or, like, sales or something yeah. are pretty cool. Um, I don't know. Some of the early work. He's got some really good stuff, and then he's got some terrible, like, portraits and stuff, which I think are, like, really, really they got to be consciously terrible. I mean, <laughs> Maybe. No one that bad. I mean, it seems like he also can just... He has the confidence and the... And... and just the will that whatever he makes is kind of going to be anointed as, you know, great. Was, I read something once, I, I hope I'm not being too off, off the mark here, but I think the CIA or someone, some branch of the government paid psychotherapists to analyze the doodles of the president. Whoa. It was like, they did this over many presidents. Uh-huh. And it was a way of, like, gauging the psychology of the person in charge. Uh-huh. And Kennedy, like, Kennedy painted sailboats. Interesting. And the sail was very angular. Uh-huh. Like, I think that You mean, Reg like, just do, do it all, not, like, made oil. Yeah, Reagan, yeah. Reagan did cowboys. And <laughs> the, That's there cool. are there's a, there's a very, very rich history of mm. the, the doodles of presidents yeah. on the phone, particularly on the, on the phone. That's interesting. I wonder and who the are. analysis of the sales, if I remember this right, it's been many years since I read this. Mm -hmm. Many, many years. But it was something to do with sexuality. Right. And this is before the Marilyn Monroe stuff came yeah. out and all that stuff about Kennedy. That the sailboat was about sexuality. That's what they It does said. seem to have had a lot of libidinal energy, that one. Yeah. <laughs> But then one is important. I know. Really your, your, your piece was called, I think if I'm not mistaken, Daddy Issues. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, we can go there. Still working on that. Still working on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Should we stop there? Yeah. yeah. We, you know, not... we, we, could go, we could go into lots of other things. But I don't know. Okay. There's, so many, there's so many artists that are listening to this right now in their studio. Because uh -huh. it's a long form. Yeah. Random off the cuff thing. And they're going to be, most of your listeners are probably in their studio right now working on their own art. Yeah. Someone wrote a like review that said they thought their paintings were better when they're listening to it. So. Well, I was saying my art, I could not listen before I started making the work I'm doing now. I couldn't listen to this. Mm -hmm. I could only listen to music because mm -hmm. I had to be completely engaged in the art. But now that I'm making the art that I'm making now, I can listen to podcasts mm. because that portion of my mind is now out of the work. Right. Like you have kind of, you, you have like a, there's the, there's the program is 
Well, the struggle is different. Yeah. Yeah, my, my struggle is something else now. And yeah. I can, like, disengage from it. It's like mm-hmm. ketamine versus ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back in the ketamine Ooh, state. that's a really good, like, that's a good <laughs> soundbite for the end. All right, folks. <laughs> <laughs>